Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this episode, we discuss episodes 11 and 12 of Neon Genesis Evangelion and the way they address the themes of community, teamwork, and what motivates the characters in the show. We won't spoil anything from future episodes of the show, but we will point out foreshadowing where it's relevant. Human Instrumentality Podcast, Unit 6, launch! Episode 11, In the Still Darkness. It's a nice day in Tokyo 3, and Shigeru from the Nerve Command Center, remember Shigeru? is getting a soda from a vending machine outside of a laundromat where he, Ritsuko, and Maya are doing laundry. Later in the subway, on their way to Nerve, they meet Futsuke, who's been on business for Gendo. He complains that Gendo gives him all the thankless Nerve tasks and remarks that the Magi, Nerve's three supercomputers, essentially run the city government. Later at Nerve, Ritsuko and Maya are having trouble with a still finicky, but now painted blue, Unit Zero. Elsewhere, Kaji runs to make an elevator with Misato in it. She pushes the closed door button, but much to her consternation, he makes it in the car anyway. While the adults are getting ready for their days and achieving absolutely nothing, Shinji is calling his father on a payphone to tell him that he's been assigned a therapist at school. Predictably, Gendo has nothing to say to him. Unpredictably, the phone line cuts out. In fact, all the power cuts out all over Tokyo 3, leaving Misato and Kaji stuck in an elevator, Ritsuko is awkwardly stuck in her lab, and Fuyutsuke is in the command center, where he orders all remaining backup power routed to the Magi and Central Dogma, even if it means cutting life support systems. On the street, the three Ava pilots find themselves locked out of nerve and unable to get to their Avas. Gendo remarks while Fiyutsuki is lighting a candle for him that the power loss is likely sabotage. Inconveniently, the ninth angel appears. The episode then becomes a sort of quick-paced comedy describing the various characters, including characters who previously had had barely any screen time, struggling with their lack of power. The Ava pilots decide to take the long way to Nerve HQ through the service tunnels, with Asuka as their self-appointed leader and Shinji more or less functioning as her manservant. Next up, the day Tokyo 3 stood still. Inside the Nerve command center, Gendo, Futsuke, and Ritsuko remark that the sabotage is likely a spy effort to try and figure out how Nerve HQ operates mechanically, and that it's ironic that the first serious threat to Nerve HQ is a human, not an angel. Fusuke says that man's worst enemy is his fellow man. The Ava pilots, seemingly lost in the tunnels, try to take another shortcut. Shinji decides, at this not-at-all-pressing time, to ask Asuka why mankind ought to be fighting angels if they're emissaries of God. Asuka says the angels struck first, and also, who cares? She then leads her friends down the wrong corridor, back up to the surface, opens a service door, and they find themselves face-to-face with the Eighth Angel, a giant daddy-long-legs-looking organism covered in eyes. Also on the surface, Huga, who's managed to get to nerve by commandeering an elected official's campaign bus, informs HQ that the Angel is inbound. Gendo decides to try and launch the Avas manually. 
Back in the tunnel, Asuka tries again to get under Rei's skin, asking why Rei, Gendo's obvious favorite, ought to get special treatment. Rei insists that she is not treated differently from anyone else, despite how it may appear. Gendo and Ritsuko manage to prep the Avas using pulleys and manual labor, while the three pilots crawl in through an air duct. In that air duct, Shinji awkwardly tries not to look up Asuka's skirt while crawling behind her. Asuka decides he hasn't done a good enough job not looking up her skirt, kicks him in the face, and the three come crashing down into HQ just in time by accident. When Shinji asks how it's possible that the Avas are ready to launch without any power, Ritsuko says that his father had faith that Shinji would arrive in time. The Avas launch, and just like their pilots, wind up crawling through tunnels within the Nerve HQ. At that moment, Matriel begins its attacks by crying rivers of acid that eat through the ground and drip onto the Avas from above, while they climb Ninja Warrior style to attack it. Remarkably, Asuka takes the reins as leader and develops a quick strategy to kill Matriel, using herself as a human shield. Payback for Shinji saving her life in the previous episode. Somewhat anticlimactically, Asuka's plan works without a hitch, and the power comes back on, right as Misato and Kaji are falling over one another trying to escape their elevator. That night, the three Ava pilots sit on the bluff above Tokyo 3, watching the stars unobstructed by light pollution philosophizing as only middle schoolers can. They feel good after their first run at being a team. Shinji wonders if the angels attack mankind because man uses technology to fend off what it fears. But Asuka calls him an idiot. How would they even know something like that? Episode 12, A Miracle's Worth. This episode opens with a flashback to the second impact in Antarctica. A polar explorer being whipped by wind carries a young, severely wounded girl to what looks like an Evangelion entry plug. He deposits her inside while the first angel, Adam, looms overhead, appearing as a glowing, screaming giant. The girl is Misato, wearing her cross necklace. The man who places her in the plug is her father, who closes the hatch right as she awakens, and then falls dead right as Adam opens his wings and initiates the explosion that melted the polar ice cap. An undetermined amount of time later, Misato awakens in the entry plug, floating in the melted seawater, and observes two pillars of light in the distance and can still hear Adam screaming. She's holding her bleeding chest wound. We cut flash forward on that wound to Misato as an adult, putting on her bra right over the exact same wound. She still has the same necklace and wears it every day. She's worn it in every episode. Outside Misato's room, the boys are drying off from a rainstorm and verbally jousting with Asuka. When Misato enters, Kensuke notices a new pin on her lapel and congratulates her on her promotion. Turns out that Misato hadn't informed Shinji or Asuka that she'd been promoted to major. Later at Nerve, the pilots are testing their harmonics, their uh, which essentially their connection to the Avas themselves. And Shinji's numbers now are approaching Asuka's. One tech remarks that it is, it's as if he was born to be an Ava pilot, and Masato agrees, with the caveat that Shinji still doesn't want to be one. In fact, when Ritsuko praises him, Shinji can't seem to take the compliment, which frustrates Asuka. In the car on the way home, Shinji and Masato confide in one another. Neither of them can take any joy in the praise that they get from their workplace. Shinji asks why he infuriated Asuka so much. 
Masato says it's because he worries too much about how other people think of him. At the apartment, uh, Kensuke has thrown a party to celebrate Masato's promotion. Masato notices Rei is not attending, though she was invited, and Kaji is late. Masato notices that Shinji is uncomfortable in the party setting. He says crowds make him anxious. She then remarks that, like him, she doesn't really remember why she joined Nerve. Kaji arrives with Ritsuko, which makes both Masato and Asuka envious. Kaji also remarks that now Masato is in charge while Fuyutsuke and Gendo are away down in the South Pole. Meanwhile, in the South Pole, the two of them are on a UN aircraft carrier transporting a huge concealed object. The aircraft carrier is sailing on a literal sea of blood. On the carrier, Fuyutsuke and Gendo philosophize that the South Pole is literally hell on Earth and that only science, the power of mankind, protects them in this place. But science was also the hubris that caused the second impact, and even if they transgressed, the punishment was too Fuyutsuke, too severe. Gendo replies that at least the South Pole is untainted by original sin. Their philosophizing and foreshadowing is cut short by the detection of an angel in orbit around the Earth. At Nerve HQ, they use satellites to observe the angel, a huge winged eye, but its AT fields destroys their satellites when they get close. It then attacks, detaching a part of its body, which impacts in the Indian Ocean with terrifying force. The angel, it turns out, is a giant kamikaze bomb, using its AT field and the Earth's gravity to create terrifying impact where it lands. It fires other parts of its body, correcting its aim, and each time gets closer. It obviously intends to drop the whole of its body on Tokyo 3. The detonation will destroy the entire city, so much so that it'll become a lake connecting with the Pacific Ocean. There will obviously be no survivors, not to mention the resulting third impact. Misato orders Tokyo 3 evacuated, but plans to fight anyway. In the women's bathroom, Risco calls her plan suicidal and a waste of the Evangelions. Misato reminds her that, since she's major, she's now technically Ritsuko's boss. Ritsuko replies that Misato doesn't really want to win or to achieve Nerve's goal. She just wants revenge on the angels. We then cut to the bumper between episodes, which is, quote, She said, don't make others suffer for your personal hatred, unquote. Masato informs the pilots that her plan is for them to catch the angel physically with their Ava's hands as it's falling. Asuka says it's crazy. Masato agrees and says they're welcome to bow out. None of them do, however. She also says they can prepare their wills. None of them do that either. She then says if they win, she will treat them to a steak dinner. In her absence, Asuka remarks that she can't shake the post-second impact poverty and insists that Ray join them if they win. Ray refuses. She's vegetarian. Masato shows them their positions to catch the angel. It's very large, which will make their job quite difficult. In the elevator to the Avas, Shinji asks Asuka why she pilots the Avas to begin with. She says she does it to show the world her talent. When Asuka turns the question on Shinji, he says he doesn't know. In the command center, Masato says the bridge crew can leave if they want. They also refuse, not wanting to abandon the children. Masato remarks, from experience, that being inside an Eva is the safest place any of them could be. In Unit 1, Shinji flashes back to Masato speaking to him the day before, talking about her father, 
who was much like Gendo and how she hated him. She tells Shinji about her father saving her life and admits she wants revenge on the angels as a way to be rid of the curse her father has over her. The mission begins, and in another exquisitely animated battle, Shinji catches the angel with his hands and a tea field, holding it by himself until Rei and Asuka join him. Rei cuts its AT field open with a prog knife, and Asuka stabs its core with her prog knife, killing it. Later, in the mission debrief by phone, Gendo congratulates Misato for her good work. And, in stark contrast to the way he spoke to Shinji in the last episode, also congratulates Shinji. Later, Misato takes the pilots out to dinner, and to her surprise, Asuka has uh, not picked an expensive steak dinner, but a cheap ramen stand so they can get Rei to join them and also go easy on Misato's budget. While they're eating, Shinji remarks that the reason he pilots Unit 1 is to hear his father's praise. Asuka tells him this is a dumb reason. And that's the end of the episode. You can probably already tell by our summary that I, these are actually two very different episodes of Evangelion from each other, although in some ways from the previous episodes as well. Uh, the first episode, episode 11, I think is easily the funniest episode of the show. It's really legitimately hilarious at times. And the second episode is much darker. It's sort of the, uh, is, we're starting to see that that creeping melancholy edge that we, we keep talking about is, is becoming more and more prevalent as the show goes on. But I do think that these two episodes do have some things in common and, and primarily their interest in Ava as a, a social show. These are the episodes that have a lot of the two characters, the, the many characters interacting with each other as a society, as a team. And I think also both of them start to really pinpoint why the characters do what they do. What are their motivations? What's going on beneath the surface? So before we get really into a lot of those two big themes, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about with uh, these two episodes in particular? The first thing that I think needs to be said is that ep uh, the 11th episode where they fight Matriel is maybe some of the fastest paced television I've, I've ever seen. Some people struggle with with anime uh, that's made for television broadcast because it operates at a higher frame rate than American animation does. There's a weird little uh, industry note, but something you get you can achieve with that higher frame rate is lightning quick cuts. And there's probably for I should go back and watch episode eleven and time it. There's got to be a, a multiple cuts per second at times in it. So much visual information. Yeah, and what it what that allows them to do is cram in a lot of world building into a, a very tight script. I think this is maybe one of the best episodes on a script level because it involves almost every single named character that we've met so far. Uh, and also gives us time to actually learn something more about some of the... Uh, the side characters that we barely have had any time to discuss previously. You know, you've probably seen in all of the episodes previously, there's been the, you know, three desk jockeys that, you know, they'll, they'll pipe in with some techno babble every, every here and there, but we don't really know who they are as people yet. And I think this, these episodes in particular, we really start to get a sense of like, Oh, these, these are actual characters with like personalities and opinions. It's totally true. What I like about this episode is it offers you insight into characters through gags. This is the closest Ava gets to a sitcom. It's just setting up and paying off gags in rapid succession. What are some of your favorite jokes in this one, Ian? Oh, man. Um, 
there's it's a lot of like small stuff like even though it's such an obvious setup the kaji and misato stuck in an elevator with like increasingly high heat in the elevator it's like it's so obvious but it's really funny because like the, the level of animosity that Masato has for Kaji and the way that he's playing it cool the entire time. It's just like, it's really basic, but it, it's funny. There's that, there's there's this one really excellent shot of uh, the like the Nerve red shirts, sort of like the, the real working stiff. I really hope they're unionized, but knowing Nerve, they're probably not pulling open a door with like a crowbar and like a bunch of manpower and then they all collapse into the door and without any of them moving <laughs> Ritzko and Maya just sort of like casually walk through the door it's just such a great like visual punchline I, I know there's another one but I want to save it for you because I don't want to hog all the glory there's like one punchline in this that is just fucking golden <laughs> I also wanted to point out that Ritzko lady boss moment uh, with Maya as her sort of like, like uh, second in command. It's very, very good to me. The best gag, maybe the best gag in this series is uh, they're in the headquarters. The life support is being shut down. So the heat's rising and sort of the, the desk people are, are remarking, damn, Futsuke and Gendo always keep cool. And then they hard cut to Futsuke and Gendo who have their uh, shoes off and have their naked feet in buckets of water. And Futsuke remarks, lukewarm. And Gendo says, indeed. <laughs> it's like it's such a great moment of like undercutting the seriousness that we've had with those two characters in particular. Um, right. two, other, two other quick punchlines that I want to get to. Right when the power goes off, there's this like cut another cut to uh, Ritzko in the lab with all of the like other lab agents looking at her. And she sort of has this great like Bart Simpson moment of like, uh, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> and like, it's just funny to see any of these characters kind of like being funny to themselves. Like it's the first time that I feel like they're cracking jokes also for each other. Uh, and then finally, there's the scene of, you know, the three Ava pilots going through the tunnels and Asuka opening the door, seeing the angel and getting freaked out and then slamming the door shut again and then going, we have made visual contact with the angel. Mission success. <laughs> Nothing phases her at all. That's really that's sort of like the 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 underlying theme of the show is showing that people's like external cool shells is constantly undercut by anxiety that they like hide to varying levels of success and the power going out which is like mundane does do something to crack everyone a little bit except ray this is low-key maybe my favorite ray episode she's the only person who knows what the right thing to do is neither asuka nor shinji listen to her and when they fall out of the air duct Shinji and Asuka, just like they were in the in the Evangelions, topple over one another awkwardly, and Ray just managed to manages to land perfectly on her feet, like like she's a ballerina or something. Great character humor, I think. Yeah, that's the thing. It's like all of the, you know, because we've sort of ragged on the humor in this show in previous episodes. The reason that the humor works in this episode in particular is because all of the jokes are based in telling us something about the characters, right? We're laughing at Gendo and Futsuke because we 
interpret them as being these like th- like stern authoritarian leaders you know uh we laugh at Asuka because it's so obvious like her anxiety about Ray immediately bubbles up to the surface her desire to be in control and be perceived as being competent is undercut constantly by the the humor of the episode uh all the way down to uh Huga who you know doesn't get a ton to do in this episode but his introduction in the episode is him doing Masato's laundry <laughs> right like that tells you everything you need to know about this guy like immediately he's got he's like carrying it's i don't think it's a stretch to say it's you should f- figure it out from that like he's obviously carrying a torch for misato that i think misato is kind of taking advantage of by getting the guy to do her laundry this is why she doesn't make any hr complaints against kajis because at some point they'll look at the her and Huga slack channel uh you know, there's there's nothing there that's incriminating, but it, it doesn't make her seem like the most compassionate leader of men. <laughs> or at least this particular man. Um, there's definitely a lot of, like, scene messages <laughs> in, in their private Slack channel from Misato. Like, uh, yeah, saw that, didn't respond. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. She knows when to withhold. Uh Meanwhile, I, I, on a plot level, we should we should talk about uh, it's implied, although I don't know if it's ever outright stated because I can't remember every line of dialogue in this series. But Kaji causes the blackout, right? Huh. I I don't know if it's stated in these episodes. We we should definitely have that as something to consider. Um, it it certainly reads well with the fact that he is the least stressed about any of the things that are happening he's taking it all very much in stride he's asking questions to Masato about oh how does the power here work and like she says oh it's got like we've got two extra backups we've got a you know the main power backup power and then like an ultimate like reserve power it's triple redundancies I think the phrase that she uses um why is Kaji asking her that question why is Kaji always just kind of like snooping around doing spy shit talking behind nerves back like Absolutely, that should be something to consider. Is what what exactly is Kaji doing here? Who is he working well, for? Well, I was just gonna say, I think it's ironic that if Kaji's the one who sabotages the power in order to try and understand more importantly, like how Nerve HQ works, it is ironic that he just winds up getting stuck in the elevator with Misato. Like he's not the most competent saboteur. He winds up doing the one thing that. I, if I was Kaji's boss, for whatever his other organization is, I was telling him, I need you to go to Nerve. I need you to spy on them, figure out what the fuck they're doing. Also, whatever you do, don't get distracted by your hex girlfriend. And what does he do? He winds up stuck in the. He reenacts a Seinfeld episode with Misato <laughs> instead of learning anything. Right. Um, I, I think there's also a. Uh, a cool parallel between that idea of sabotaging. And I think you alluded to this, that the idea of sabotaging nerve HQ to show us what the cracks in nerve are in, in doing so we learn about all the cracks of the characters too, right? Like we get to see without the sort of pomp and circumstance of, you know, a functional nerve HQ and a functional government, like who are these people really? Like when you, you know, when you turn the lights off, who are these people? And so it's just another really, really clever bit of of parallel storytelling of like plot and character moving really, really well in sync with each other. Uh, a few other really small things. We sort of blitzed through this during the uh, introduction section, but we now know that 
Tokyo 3 is run by supercomputers, that the government is a sham, that like the elections are rigged. Like this is crazy. Another example of the insane politics of nerve being like this shadowy cabal behind the scenes that's secretly controlling everything. Like they've faked a democracy in the city that these people are living in. It's outrageous. Fusuke is this crazy line where he remarks, well, you know, the three magi vote, so it's still a democracy. It's the most efficient democracy. Uh, he, he's, he's a techno-futurist libertarian, an exasperated techno-futurist libertarian still reading the paper on the subway. I think that's what irritates Fusuke. <laughs> I love also Maya and Shigeru's reactions to it. Like Maya's like, oh, that's so incredible. We're living in the city of the future. And Shigeru's just like, give me a fucking break. Which <laughs> like, is like the conversation that I am having with like everyone all the time. People being like, oh, I love, you know, taking my lift everywhere and, you know, getting DoorDash. And I'm like, get the fuck out of my face. This sucks ass. So I relate a great deal. I think this is another case uh, in the Shigeru's a metalhead argument because i think that's a very common kind of cynicism that appeals to the the metal fans that we know as well shigeru has a second twitter account with a rose emoji that yeah. he's praying misato never finds <laughs> yes I, I i'm accepting this as headcanon for sure <laughs> this is canon um i think it's also worth pointing out and i'm not the first person to point this out so it's not like the most interesting thing let's just talk about the 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 angel for a second let's talk about matriel um great reveal interesting mm -hmm. you like so the, for the first few shots you only see matriel's like legs and not like in full scale so it's just like what's with these lines moving what the fuck is this and like you you cut back to the frustrated generals in the first episode who have nothing to do and just sort of watching the angel on their on their screen they're like what is this? What's going on? And then when you finally see it, it's another striking kaiju design. I like it. But it's worth noting, Matriel's got to be the wimpiest angel in the whole series. Yeah, this the plan, Matriel's plan is uh, not effective. Like, if, if it wasn't for the blackout, it, this thing would have gotten ripped to shreds, like, seconds upon arriving on the shore of Tokyo. This is the only episode where the Ava guns actually work and they work yeah. like really well. It's like, what's wrong with you that like you formed into a monster that's weak against firearms? You found my only weakness, bullets. Bullets. Crying <laughs> <laughs> uh, tears of acid, ultimate emo angel. I know. That's I honestly love that detail. Like uh, one more point about that reveal is I love that we don't see the angel in its full form until the Ava pilots do. It's all building up to that shot, and it's simultaneously like, oh, fuck. It's like a jump scare, which the show never really does, um, which is just like a nice little technique to to reveal at this late stage in the show. And then it also right. is used as a punchline, like the Oscar joke that we we mentioned previously. But that's just cool that like we it, it puts us in the same seat as the Ava pilots. Like we know as little as they do. Um, mm hmm. And yeah, the the really bizarre psychedelic image of this like spider covered in eyes, like crying acid, even when it's like a wimpy angel, they still make it like really distinctive and striking in its design. I agree completely. Yeah. I, Matriel's maybe one of my favorite angels des design wise, like, but at, at the same time, it is sort of like. 
here you get to see another another instance where uh, the angel exists to an extent to show how competent Asuka is. Because once again, her plan just works. Yeah. No, this is a, I think, similar to the other episodes we talked about, the stakes are just different when there are multiple Avas. Like they just have right. so much more tactical range. And so the problem becomes less like, how can we stop this thing? And more of how can we work together? You know? Right. And, and that's important foreshadowing when you realize that people's ability to cooperate with one another is key to their success against the angels. And, and like, and that, and that's, that's in the dialogue too, flashing into the next episode. Right. Cause you know, you've this mm-hmm. scene with Futsuke and Gendo in, in the aircraft carrier and Futsuke remarks that like science, which is a deliberative collaborative democratic process with oversight is humanity's power. He's sort of like, well, it, it, one way to interpret that is okay. Individual angels can like generate force fields and cry acid, I guess, but we can do science. Mm-hmm. Um, but isn't science what got us here in the first place? Yeah. I, I think kind of drawing on that same metaphor that, you know how I've constantly been bringing up like how each of the angels is sort of a, a metaphor for the problems that the characters are facing within each episode. You've got like, you know, Shinji fighting the dick angels and the like masculine energy angels at the beginning. You've got Asuka dealing with the maternity angel in the volcano. Obviously the angel that splits into two represents the teamwork the... angel. Right. And so these two are both, kind of defy that uh, that kind of interpretation unless you think about how uh, you know there's one way of looking at the the acid spilling out of the eyes being about that same idea that the the power shutting down sort of reveals who people truly are the the fact that it's coming out of eyeballs has something to do with perception and that's something that comes up a lot in these episodes you know even the the joke about Gendo and Futsuke is about how they are perceived versus how they actually are and right in the over the course of the episode as the the Ava pilots are getting to the Avas Asuka is constantly being like oh this is so degrading I'm so glad that I you know no one's seeing me like this she's so caught up in how she's perceived like it's important to her to be perceived as being in charge to be perceived as being confident to not be you know looked down upon or in some way undercut by the visual of what she's doing you know and so I guess the eye angels, because both of these have like eyes at the center of them. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're really all about sight, but they're also about attacking the city as a city. It's about, you know, the like the angel that's dropping from the sky. Do you have the name of that one on hand? I, I'm, I'm forgetting it. Sahakwiel. Sahakwiel, the angel that's dropping from space, it's trying to decimate the entire city. It's about destroying not just the individual Ava pilots, but the society in which they live in. You know, Uh, so I think that even though these are like less like Freudianly uh, inspired angels, they're still tied directly to the main themes of these episodes. It's true. I mean, also, uh, both anxieties in this episode still back to Gojira tied into nuclear anxiety, tied Mm. tied into the fear of like cities being on lockdown, certain death falling from above and you need to evacuate and the brave thing is to stay behind, even though you know your odds of success are very small. You know, that's that's what 
these angels bring to the table. If if mankind's power is science, then it's sort of like here's maybe this is your retribution for nuclear weaponry is the divine mirror to it. Mm. Right? Right. I, I think that's really cool, especially because, you know, that conversation between Gendo and Fusuke in the South Pole is one of the most important conversations in the show. I think it lays out like so much of what the show is really trying to say. And what I love is that both sides of the equation are shown in both of these episodes. You know, we get to see that science. First, we, we you know, hear about science being what gives us the Magi, what gives Nerve its ability to be run Tokyo 3 as the super futuristic city. And then immediately the science all fails. We see it crumble apart. So science has its limits. But you're, to your point about science being the result of a democratic collaborative process, the only way that humanity is able to defeat Matriel is by working together, even without the, the shield that technology brings us we can find ways to collaborate. You know, there's all these great shots of all of the nerve red shirts, you know, working the pulleys to get the entry plugs into the Avas on time and even Gendo's pitching in and, you know, everyone's doing their part to make this work, even though they don't have the fullest of their capabilities at that time. Gendo's pitching in, but he's definitely voting on the board to not give the red shirts better health care. Oh no, absolutely not. Like, and they're contract actually- employees. <laughs> like, That's the thing about Gendo is, you know, Ritsko makes this point that, oh, you know, Gendo, he believed that the kids will will make it in time. You know, he believed in you. And Shinji's like, oh, my God, (laughs) he believes in me. But no, he fucking doesn't. Like, he doesn't say your fucking name. Yeah. He doesn't care that you've been assigned a therapist at school. That's an interesting one. One note about that is in the uh, the subtitled version. It's not a therapist, but it's like a future planning meeting. Uh, that he wants Gendo to come to, which I think okay, is so a career advisor. Yeah, a career advisor. And so <laughs> it's a really funny thing to ask Gendo to do because Gendo has plans for Shinji's future very clearly. They just happen to be the kind that are very difficult to explain at middle school. <laughs> My son, such as it were, tomorrow will catch a giant gelatinous atomic bomb creature falling from suborbit. I don't care how he does on his SATs. <laughs> but so Gendo, another thing that comes up in, in both of these episodes is the, the dad issues, like really <laughs> hammer home pretty seriously. Oh boy, here we go. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, so there's the, the phone call between Shinji and Gendo at the beginning, which, you know, if you wanted to be really nitpicky about it, it's like, why is Shinji using a payphone when Misato already gave him a cell phone? Who can say it? I think it's more evocative. It's, it's a much more striking image and it's a cool callback to Shinji being on the payphone at the very beginning of the show in the first episode. It's just a more cinematic image. And so you can have your, your uh, appliance close up. Yes. Got to have exactly. Uh, And so there's that incredibly cold exchange between the two of them where Gendo is like, I don't, I don't care about your career advisory. And then by the episode, we're supposed to believe that Gendo is, he has some faith in the kid's ability to pilot the Avas and that they will come to nerve and they will pilot the Avas. But is that really faith in the Ava pilots or is that just faith in his mission? You know, is it just faith that no matter what his goal to defeat the angels and to complete nerves ultimate goal, which is still sort of murky at this point, is that what he's actually really believing in? 
Kendo's an inscrutable character. I think he's inscrutable not because he's badly written, but because he's a bad person. Even when he compliments his son, he refuses to use his son's name. And uh, while we're on the topic of in these episodes, Asuka being right in terms of when she's in the Evangelion piloting it, even if she can't find her way through the tunnels, she's also correct when like she and Shinji have this conversation. Shinji says, I think my reason for doing what I do is my father's approval. Asuka very correctly like rejoinders and is like, that's not a good reason to first of all, to put your life on the line, but second of all, in my opinion, to do anything at all. Right. It means that he's, he does not have reasons unto himself. It's only related to someone else. And that actually, now we can start transitioning into the, like the heavier shit that's happening in, uh, in the second of these two episodes. Yeah. The conversation between uh, Shinji and Misato in the car ride home from Nerve. Uh, I really wish we got more of these scenes. I like, it's so human and so, naturalistic just to have the two of them in a car talking to each other. Shinji is like, why is Asuka mad about my reaction to having higher sync rates than her? And he just, he can't quite wrap his head around it. And Masato just sees right through it and reads this perfectly is that Shinji is constantly concerned about how he is supposed to react or how he is supposed to behave based on how others will perceive his behavior that Asuka just wants him to respond authentically to being praised, like on its own merits. And he can't do that. All of his feelings about himself are tied up in his feelings about other people. His, his But his feelings are also also another dark mirror to hers, right? Mm, because of course. Her, her reasons aren't good either. She wants, she doesn't want appraisal from her father. She wants appraisal from the world. You know, she wants adoration. She's she she needs the Mazzy Star song. I want to be adored. That's her, and that's also like a not a good thing. And Shinji's bad faith reasoning next to her in the same room illuminates her bad faith reasoning, not just to other people because apparently, like you know, the adults can see right through this, but to herself. You know, it it Oscar's lack of self awareness is it's that's her at field that's her body armor mm-hmm. if, when she becomes self-aware she will break down and somewhere inside she knows that she needs to be this athlete this athlete this leader this sexually mature but also don't look at me you know that's what that's what she needs to to give herself a reason to live She's it's it's like a it's a, an ironic tragedy, right? She's able to see Shinji's problems and critique them and wants the best for him, but not able to do that for herself. Um, it's an, it's another reason why I just think she's a marvelous character. Yeah, she plays a slightly more subdued role in these two episodes compared to the ones before them. Uh, she's more of a, a part of the cast rather than a main focus, but. She's such a well-defined character in her motivations and her flaws that even when she's in the periphery of the story, she can't help but be motivated by those things. And they come through in every single action that she takes. Uh, it's really, it's one of the things that makes her such a good character. You get sweet Asuka here too. You know, she she's, she can read Misato. She's like, steak dinner. Uh, we're about to get blown up. Who cares? You think that's cool because you grew up 
poor and I understand that she like understands the difference between the generations and she's like, but look, this is a steak dinner is not really good recompense for what we do, you know, and she's willing to like make concessions to respect Misato's budget to include Ray, even though she doesn't like Ray exactly. Yeah, you know what? I I, I want to talk more about the Oscar Ray thing um, because these two episodes do serve as a really good, really good way of kind of breaking. Like in episode eleven, we get to see them at odds with each other because Oscar is so jealous of Ray and so jealous of Ray's you know place in the hierarchy at Nerve and you know is like needling Shinji for being close with Ray and wants to be perceived as being in charge even though Ray is always right when they're coming down to make the decision making but then in episode 12 she's going out of her way to become Ray's friend you know she tries to invite Ray to uh, Masato's party she doesn't show up cuz you know as we've established Ray is you know at home sipping lean blasting future or whatever the fuck Ray does in her spare time and Rails on rails on rails on rails. And, and then at the end of the episode, she, now that she knows that Ray is vegetarian, makes concessions to make sure that Ray is accommodated. Asuka's feelings towards Ray are obviously really fucking complicated. Like, I, she simultaneously wants to be better than Ray, but wants to have Ray included in her life. We need to think, I think also at this point, point out that, you know, you and I are doing a lot of things to to critique the kids' psychology. But with the exception of Ray, Ray is sort of her own basket case. But I'm talking about like Shinji and Asuka here. I, their psychological shortcomings are normal and understandable. Maybe they're even like well-adjusted considering the, the situation. You know, like, I mean, obviously they have shortcomings, but they're fucking children. Mm-hmm. Uh, no one seems to realize that except Misato. And even then, I think she kind of is still condescending to them. Like that whole thing about the steak dinner, it's, you know, a parent offering a reward to a child that doesn't actually match the experience that the children are having. And the kids can read that immediately. That's what I love that scene because it's one of the first times that you can tell that, well, we've sprinkled this throughout that I think Shinji is very perceptive of some of Misato's personal flaws, but this is the first time we see the kids as a group being more emotionally mature and being able to see something that Masato can't. I took a different read. Mm, okay. Uh, here's my read on the whole, because, and we're going to have to talk about the beginning of this episode at some point, because holy crap, is it important? But at the beginning of the episode, you see that Masato understands something and she remarks on it later in the episode, it gets a callback, right? Mm -hmm. When the angels are winning, the only safe place is inside an entry plug. I don't think she ever even really intended for the kids to, to beat it. I think she looks at the angel and she's like, it's a nuke. I can't fuck with this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to find an excuse to put Shinji who I care about and the other two kids in an entry plug inside an Ava with their AT fields up because then they'll live. Wow. I'll pay it forward. I'll do what my dad did for me. And God damn it, I'm going to be stuck repeating my dad's mistakes. But I'm glad that I'm alive. He did one good thing and I'm going to do the same thing. Her whole plan, I don't think, is we're going to win. I think her plan is like, I, God damn it, if humanity is going to die, at least let Shinji Asuka and Rei live. They don't deserve this. Wow. D you just blew my fucking mind. <laughs> um, 
So people are like, you're crazy. She's like, yeah, it's a crazy plan. I'm not expecting it to work. I'm expecting to die. That's that's honestly incredible. And I think you're right. Like I had never known what to make of the fact that the the object that she's put into at the beginning of the episode looks so much like an entry plug. Like, are we supposed to think that it is an entry plug or is it just like a coincidence, a reuse of, of design? But no, you're right. If you look at it that way, um, that is so emotionally powerful and, and gets to something that is oh just so true about Masato for the rest of the show the way that she she like her yeah well yeah it, it gets to the heart of her motivations like you know the Ritzko's read on Masato is that Masato is only doing what she's doing to sort of get over the trauma of you know what her father did and watching you know the world literally turn into a hellscape in front of her eyes as a kid, which I can't even fucking imagine, you know, how deeply traumatizing that was for her. Like, and the show has not yet really shown how much that is fucked up Masato, but it will. Um, yeah. Well, the first thing you see is she's covering the wound, right? She's always she covers it. it. She covers it with sexuality. She covers it then again with her jacket of professionality. Mm -hmm. And finally, finally the cross, which is, she thinks it's going to protect her because that's what crosses do. And it's also like her symbol of like, kind of like fuck God a little bit. Right. But at the same time, it's, it's the tell it's the tell that you're never really going to escape that day. Your dad who you hated up until then gave his life to save you from God. Right. Yeah. Um, there's a really, really uh, in that shot of Masato and Shinji uh, talking about Masato's father you know, there's that, there's this great like moment where she's saying like, you know, my dad did give his life and it immediately cuts to the cross, which anyone can figure out what the fuck is going on there. Like, it's really obvious what kind of religious imagery the show is playing with. Um, I'm really glad that you pushed back on my conception of this show early on, like in the first episode of this podcast, when you said you made a case for the religious interpretation of the show. And because I was kind of ready upon this like third rewatch um, or I actually don't even know how many times I've seen this show, but on this particular rewatch with you, uh, I was ready to gloss over a lot of the religious stuff, but I'm really glad that you've forced me to pay attention to it. Cause I think that that sort of stuff would have missed me, you know, if I hadn't been really looking for it, but it all works. It's so true. It, it, it does. It does work. This is why I reject when people say like, oh, it's all just in there. It's fluff. It's there to look cool. It's stylistic. It's appropriative. It's not I'm like, no, it's I think the show is grappling. with. That's the theme of of episode 12 is is this is this is Misato. Sorry, I think episode 11. This is Misato trying to understand the meaning of sacrifice. She gives the kids the option out. She's like, I'm not going to make you do this. And they say they're going to do it. And she gives her coworkers the option out. She's like, I'm not going to make you sacrifice yourself for my goal. And her goal isn't Gendo's goal. It's not Futsuki's. Her goal is like, the only thing I can do is try to have a better life for these fucking kids. Maybe mm. they'll make it better than I did. I don't know. But if it means I'm going to get nuked inside central dogma, then I'm going to do it. Yeah. I, I had, I had never really read her that way until you, you mentioned this and it's, it's heartbreaking. It makes this 
it, this one shoots up the leaderboards a lot on like favorite episodes because of that interpretation. That's really, really powerful stuff. I, I think you also, in a side conversation, briefly mentioned another thing that I think is germane to our conversation about this, the importance of the religious imagery that it's not just a throwaway thing. Like it actually even goes into the angels themselves. Do you want to briefly mention that? Sure. I, I think I may have mentioned this in a previous episode, but it's worth noting that the angels in Evangelion aren't made up. Their names aren't made up. Uh, they they come from Jewish mysticism, uh, which carries over into Christian mysticism. Um, so, for example, in the last episode, Sandalphon, the magma angel, that's the name of, of the angel in the Bible who stands guard at the Garden of Eden with a sword of fire. Mm-hmm. And so they they interpret Sandalphon as like living inside lava. It's the fire angel, etc. So Matriel is the angel of rain, and you see that in its like acid crying eyes. But you see that in in I think what's trying to say is like the episode with Matriel sort of washes away the veneer of things. Right. It reveals people as they are. But it's also cleansing. At the end of that episode, you get the most endearing moment in the whole show. You get them in their plug suits without technology, looking at the sky and, and wondering about the meaning of things and at peace. It lets you this series lets you have that moment of of, of peace and 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 innocence. I, I, I think that's cool. So Hakuiel, uh is the angel of the skies. Uh and I think what we're what we're meant to interpret that as is not only that it comes out of the sky but that the sky is inescapable if the only way to not be under the sky is to be underground to be hiding um it's literally an eye in the sky it's watching you all the time it's inescapable it's like the ghost of your dad when masato's dad dies he falls over the entry plug and his shadow really never quite leaves her yeah and like that's what hurts her that's what as uh, you know, Johnny Cash would say, and that's what tortures me. That's what tortures her. Yeah, it, it's the, you know, we, we've had sort of a fleeting shot once before where the conversation around Second Impact like openly upsets Masato. Now we know why. And I think it also explains a lot about why she is so protective and invested in Shinji because... I think the two of them at their core have a lot in common. They're going through a lot of the same things, which is that both of their fathers were basically absent and uh, emotionally distant. And I I think we can say emotionally abusive of both of them based on what we know. Absolutely. Uh, And I think that the fact that she is harboring this pain um, about the death of her father and this, this complication, her inability to reconcile her father's uh, abuse and his sacrifice that makes it so that she needs to make sure that Shinji is okay because Shinji's going through the exact same thing of his father, both, you know, putting him in the Ava, giving him the entry plug, keep it in some way, giving him the power to defeat the angels. These things that are coming specifically to torture the characters in a psychological fashion, as we've talked about, but is also by doing so, forcing Shinji to experience this pain over and over and over and over and over again. And it just lends even more credence to your point about Masato needing for the kids to make it out. Okay. Because she truly didn't, even though she's still alive, she's not okay. Yeah. She wants, I think she understands that she's fucked up. 
and she understands that she's at cross. She, she's an alcoholic. Um, she probably, to the best of our knowledge, she only ever really liked, maybe loved one guy. They're not together. The spark is still there. She's doing everything she can to deny it. Mm-hmm. You know, her best friend doesn't believe in her. You, you know, she's working for an organization that her dad worked for that killed her dad, making her do the one thing she doesn't really want to do, which is like she's putting these kids in harm. And I think she sees Shinji. She sees the similarities. She under doesn't she even say she's like, my dad was a lot like your dad. Yeah. In that same scene. Yeah, in that same scene. You know, I think I think she inside and she's covering the wound. She doesn't want to say it out loud, but she has this understanding. She's like. I'm fucked up. Um, you know, we're going to see other vices of hers later and, and her her desire to binge things. It's not just beer, you know, and she I think she just wants anything but for Shinji to have her life. She's slave to Gendo. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. She doesn't want that. She wants him to be liberated in some way and doesn't know how to do that. The only thing she can think of to do is sacrifice herself. Poor thing. Uh, I think there's also a really great, there's another way of looking at that line about the safest place is in the AT is in the entry plug because of the AT field. And it's this moment where her belief in the kids becomes the AT field, you know, like that's the thing that's going to protect them is the love and uh, support that they are being given by the team that is still there and still believes in them. I feel like this is a, a common like sentimental anime trope. It's like if all of the people around you in your life believe in you, that gives you power of some kind, you know, like, and you get your most shown in moment. Like you, you, this never happens in this show, but you, you get that moment. It's it, where like Shinji's in unit one and he's about to catch the hack wheel and he just says, AT field. And you like, you see the power go mm-hmm. and I, like it, it, he gets that, he gets that superhero moment because he knows that people are counting on him, but that they believe in him. Right. He's doing even it. If maybe they don't, even if maybe secretly I was like, he's going to fuck this up. I'm going to die here in a second. But not only that, but it's the, these two episodes, I think, represent a, like a peak of the Ava pilots all believing in each other as well. When it comes time to execute the plan to kill Matriel, they all lock in. They immediately know what to do, and they all like buy into their roles. When it comes time mm-hmm. to, to catch the angel that's about to annihilate the entirety of Tokyo, they just they suit up and they're ready to go, and they believe in each other's ability to do it correctly. Suddenly, all of that shit about Asuka needing to look the coolest or you know, Ray's lack of ego or Shinji's fear, none of it matters because they're all dedicated to doing the task and they've got a group of people who are all there and really believe in them. In these in these episodes, you get the moment where you think maybe everything's going to be okay. But it, it, you get the dark mirror always in Evangelion. And, mm-hmm. and the dark mirror is you finally get to see the second impact even in even in even in brief flashes and you get to see the direct aftermath you get to see an ocean of blood you get to see like the people who survived it talking about like antarctica is now this place that's been wiped clean of original sin and original sin is mankind like it you know i mean you also get to you finally get to see adam you see the first angel and uh what's it look like yeah looks like an evangelion right it looks looks like like unit one 
and and so like I think in that moment you, you begin to understand like maybe everything will be okay but your life is also wrapped up inside of the thing that caused you all your pain mm-hmm. inescapably yeah. all you can do is philosophize about why you stay there and you know even in that that ending sequence you know where they go and get ramen which is just it's maybe the sweetest most sentimental and like emotionally pure <laughs> moment of the show like it's just so clearly like this makeshift family trying to do right by each other but it ends with Shinji revealing his, as you put it, his bad faith motivation. It's only in this moment of pure love and acceptance with each other that he's able to admit that something is really fucking wrong with him. And it's the first time that he comes to terms with it and recognizes it. It's devastating, even in its like optimism at that moment. And Asuka doesn't have the language to breach it with him. Mm. She doesn't have the emotional ability to like to say all she can say is like, that's dumb. All she can do is degrade him. She's just like one of the angels. All she's got left is left is emasculating him. She doesn't know how to how to try and 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 free him. I think maybe that's what makes this show deeply emotionally affecting for me is maybe with an exception of, of Ray and definitely with an exception of the father figures and with an exception of the absent mothers. But I think they're all good people. I, I think Evangelion posits a world where bad things happen to good people. Mm-hmm. I would say even Ray at the core of it is, is a good person. I don't think Ray is, you know, malicious in any way or, you know, Ray doesn't want harm, but Ray's main function is to reveal other people's insecurities in some way. Like people project onto Ray so much. Uh, Asuka in particular, Shinji, um, Gendo projects his desires onto Ray. Uh, there's Ray is not an active participant, but I don't think she's a bad person. I think she's just, you know, not a, uh, a character with a little, with a lot of agency in the story. That's sort of her defining characteristic. And there are a lot of good people that don't have agency in their lives. So, you know, that's fair. No one remembers why they joined nerve. Yeah. This is, it's funny because even in the show, we've we've come to see like Shinji's forced into joining Nerve and we see it in the course of those first few episodes. But at this point, now that he's so accustomed to it, it's just become his life. He needs to be reminded, like, why is he doing it? Why does he keep coming back? It's everyone's trapped in Nerve now. The, even we, we've we been talking about how the show has reached this kind of like equilibrium. And in some ways that has lent the show to its a certain degree of positivity because everyone's comfortable in their roles and everyone's doing well at their job and they're defeating the angels at a really quick clip. But with that comes this sense of fear of being trapped inside of a, a role and inside of a system that they don't understand and don't have any power over. Right. I think it, uh, to me, this, the, the, the episode of Sahakwiel is maybe analogous to the moment in twin peaks where you first hear about the black lodge. Right. Yeah. 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 Now, the, now the weird metaphysics happen. Now the, now the understanding of machinations beyond human understanding that lead toward inexorable suffering begin to show themselves. Yeah. This is, I mean, it's crucial that we now know what second impact looks like because not only does that explain the trauma that rests in the rear view for a lot of these characters, 
but it makes it very clear why we do not want a third impact to happen. We don't want to see this again. But, I mean, you can tell that, I mean, the Twin Peaks comparison in that sense is very good because at some point we're going to have to confront the fact that it might be happening again. And right. that's what the angels are trying to do here. And now we understand that not just because they're big, scary monsters, but that there is some sort of truly apocalyptic fear that resides in the darkness of this show. Right. I actually saw there is a there is a quote on the Internet of of Hideki Anno saying that when it when Evangelion came out, him saying, oh, people started coming up to me after it got popular and said, oh, it's like Twin Peaks, but for anime. Um, and he, he, my understanding in the quote is that he sort of like welcomes that comparison. I think it's a really apt comparison. I think, I mean, they're two of my three favorite shows of all time. I, I think it makes a lot of sense that I'm into both of them because they're, they're similar in a lot of ways. Yeah. Interest in, interest in human beings, interest in camp, but also like an interest in like deep suffering. Yeah. So we're going to end on this kind of darker note again. And that's appropriate because the show is only getting darker from here. Welcome to the second half of Neon Genesis Evangelion. It's just going to keep getting darker. I'm glad that we got this one last really legitimately very funny episode in before things get really fucked up because boy, are they going to. The next two are a little strange. The The monster of the week steam hasn't quite run out and we're also going to get a very important episode of, a of Evangelion, but in my opinion, probably the second weakest next to, I mean, everyone knows how I feel about Jed alone, but next one, next one's also a little bit of a, a little bit of an inhale before a long, very, very sharp exhale. And hopefully somewhere along that exhale, we'll uh, hope to breathe out a bit more fan service for you as well. Thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really, email us at humaninstrumentalitypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at anotheravapod and on Instagram at humaninstrumentalitypod. Extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week.